G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. And he chooses Joseph. He's going to use one man, Joseph, to save an entire nation. Hello and welcome to Today with Jeff Vines. In his series, The Story, Pastor Jeff is leading us through the major narratives of the Old and New Testaments. Today we'll hear the story of Joseph, in which we're reminded that God is able to do something that is beyond what we are able to understand. Now, when we come to the story of Joseph, there's something powerful that happens in this narrative. And what happens is we're reminded that God is able to do something that is beyond our understanding. This is Today with Jeff Vines. All right, good morning, everybody. I hope you're ready for this weekend message. Uh, I'm ready. I hope you're ready. You're not ready. (laughs) Genesis chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50, verse 19 through 21. Just three simple verses. Genesis 50, verses 19 through 21. For those who first time, we're in a series called The Story, and we're going through the major narratives of the New Testament and the Old Testament to show us how the Bible is so connected and correlated together to give us the same message. Now, I want to start like this. Um, have you ever said something like, you know, if I were God, I'd be doing a better job with the planet? <laughs> Here's the problem with that. Uh, there are many things you see that happen in the world that you say, I just can't see a good reason for that. The problem is just because you can't see a good reason for that doesn't mean no good reason exists. The reason you can't see it is because you're not God. And God is omniscient. He knows all things, but you don't. And the sooner that you recognize that, the better off you're going to be. There's an old story that's told, and every year I go to Africa, I tell the same story. And they laugh every time. And I think it's because they like the simplistic humor. And it's the guy who's seated under an acorn tree. And he says, God, I think your sense of proportion is all out of whack. Because they've got this big tree and little bitty acorns. I look out, and there's little plants and big, big watermelons. God, your sense of proportion is out of whack. And about that time, an acorn drops from the tree and hits him in the head. And what does he say? Thank God that wasn't a watermelon. Just because you can't see what's happening doesn't mean there is no good reason. You're not God. You're not omniscient. You're not all-knowing. We are not all-knowing. Now, when we come to the story of Joseph, there's something powerful that happens in this narrative. And what happens is we're reminded that God uh, is able to do something that is beyond our understanding. Uh, Not only one thing, many things. But one of those things is it's amazing that he allows every single one of you in this room to live a life of freedom, to make the decisions you want to make, to do what you want to do, to choose to do good, to choose to do bad, choose to do greatness, righteousness, unright, whatever. He allows you to choose. And he not only allows you and this generation, but every generation that's ever lived, God allows all of us to do what we're going to do, to decide what we're going to decide, to live the way we want to live. And ultimately he takes all those decisions and still brings it to his plan, what he wanted to accomplish all along. That's powerful. So, you know, that to me is a greater miracle than God just predetermining everything that ever happened, making us all like robots. That, I mean, that'd be easy part if you're God. The harder part would be, I'm going to let all of you have your freedom, but I'm going to take all your decisions collectively and I'm still going to bring my plan to fruition. That is a great miracle. You don't see that anywhere more than you see it in the life of Joseph. 
Now, in Joseph's story, there's an upper story and a lower story. Now, you know the upper story, right? If you've read in the story or if you haven't, let me help you. The reason God chooses Joseph now is because a famine is going to come up on the land. And it has the potential of destroying the people of Israel. So God's got to intervene. He's got to do something because he made a promise to Abraham. Your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands on the seashore. And through your people is going to come one that will bless the world. Well, if all the Israelites die, that ends that plan. God, having foreknowledge, knows that a famine is coming. And he chooses Joseph. He's going to use one man, Joseph, to save an entire nation. But Joseph doesn't know that. So he's going to live this entire life, and it's going to be a lot later in his life when he knows all of a sudden, hey, now I, now I know what God was doing. But he lives his life where you and I live in the lower story. He doesn't, he's not privy to the information in the higher story. He doesn't know what God is doing. He only knows what he's doing. Now, you think about Joseph's life quickly. Uh, let's schematize it. Just Joseph's life. This kid cannot catch a break. He's 17 years old when this starts. And his brothers don't like him. They want to kill him. Now, part of it's Joseph's fault. He's an arrogant punk. He is. His father gives him a coat of many colors. What does he do? He wears it every day. Hey, guys, look at this. You know, it's like his father, your father giving you brand new Nike shoes and everybody else uh, Chuck Taylors or something. But he gets this beautiful coat of many colors and he splashes it around. And he has some dreams. He has these dreams where the wheat bow down to him and the stars and sun and the moon, they bow. And he says, it doesn't, you know, the implication is all my brothers are going to bow down to me. Look, there are some dreams you have. Keep them to yourself, man. Uh, You might have gotten them from God, but that's okay. But that's between you and him. You don't have to tell everybody. And so Joseph kind of wears the coat, tells everybody his dreams. So finally, the brothers have had enough. He goes out to Dothan, which is a secluded area. And his brothers say, we've got to kill this guy. And so they throw him into a pit, a cistern. They're going to they're kill him that way. One of the brothers says, nah, you know, this is kind of a bit cruel. Let's not do this. And another brother says, man, if we're going to do away with him, let's at least make some cash. Let's sell him. So they sold him to the passing Ishmaelites in a caravan who are going to take him to Egypt and sell him as a slave. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, of course, the boys have got to explain to Father Jacob what happened to Joseph. Now, here's what's interesting. Jacob makes the same mistake with his son that Jacob's father Isaac made. Isaac favored one son over the other. Isaac favored Esau over Jacob. And Jacob became miserable. Now, Jacob's doing the same thing with his 12 sons. He favors Joseph. And anytime you do that in the family, you bring heartache and strife and struggle and pain and suffering. It's just the way that it is. And so... Jacob does the same thing with Joseph. Now remember, Jacob's going to have a name change. He did into Israel, and these are going to be the 12 tribes of Israel. So God is going to save them through the work of Joseph. But Joseph's life is very interesting because the brothers come back to Jacob. And remember, anytime a Hebrew narrative includes detail, it's not just for fun. Hebrew narratives are very specific, or they're very general. When they're very general, you don't need to know any more information than you receive. When they're very specific, there's always a point. They take Joseph's coat and they dip it in goat blood and they take the coat back to Jacob, Joseph's father. And they say, a ferocious animal has devoured your son. And the Bible tells us that Jacob weeps and turns his face away and tears his clothes in sackcloth and ashes, a way of mourning in the old Testament. He can't bear the thought of losing his son. Now, Joseph in the meantime is sold in Egypt to Potiphar, who is an official representing Pharaoh. Joseph, now here's where it starts. Somewhere along this line, this starts at 17 and ends when Joseph is 30, so he's very young. Somewhere along the line, God starts to work on Joseph. And Joseph starts to realize, I've been arrogant, you know. I 
I need to be changed. I need to have a heart transformation. And God changes his heart because he starts to do the right no matter what it costs him. And it does cost him. That's important for you to remember. Joseph does what is right. And it seems like every time he does what is right, he pays for it. For instance, he goes to Pharaoh's house, Potiphar's house rather. And Potiphar notices his wisdom and administrative capability. And he puts him in charge of the entire household. His servants, his vineyards, his travel schedule, whatever. And everything's going well until Mrs. Potiphar checks Joseph out. And the Bible says that Mrs. Potiphar noticed he, had, he was well-built and handsome. And she, well, forced herself on Joseph. And Joseph said, no, I, I cannot do this. Now, he doesn't say, I can't do this because it would be a sin against Potiphar or a sin against you, Mrs. Potiphar. He says, I can't do this because it'd be a sin against God. God said, don't do this. Don't do this. I can't do it. Well, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. That's not in the Bible, but it's still no less true. <laughs> And she was furious, man. So what does she do? She forces herself on him again, and she grabs his cloak as he tries to run away. So he's running through the palace streaking like a Ray Stevens song, you know, and he's just trying to escape. And then what happens? He does the right thing now. He's been honest. He's shown great integrity. He's, he denied himself something, I'm sure, that would have been a temptation for any man. And yet what happens? She goes to Mr. Potiphar, and she says, Joseph, approach me. He ends up in the dungeon in prison for two years. Now, folks, this is not just a prison like today where you have television and a workout gym and a library. Back in these days in the ancient civilization, there was death and disease and contamination in the food. I mean, you didn't survive very long. There was no light because everything was down in the dungeon. Prisons were down into the ground, cold and dark. What does Joseph do? Well, he still follows God, even in the dungeon. The warden is so impressed by his administrative skills and his care and concern for the other prisoners that he puts him in charge of the whole prison. He says, dude, why should I work? You can do all this on your own. I'm going to put you in charge of the entire prison. Where does that get him? Well, it gets him. The other prisoners trust him. And so two of them have a dream, a baker and a butler who used to work for the Pharaoh. And Joseph interprets the dreams. Now, this is quite humorous because the butler says, here's my dream. And Joseph says, oh, I know what that means. In three days, you're going to be restored to the Pharaoh and be given your rightful place in the kingdom. And he goes, yay. And then the baker comes and says, wow, that was a great interpretation. Me next, me next, me next. And he tells him his dream. And Joseph said, oh yeah, I know your dream, Mr. Baker. In three days, the king's going to remove your head and the birds they are going to feast on your flesh. (laughs) Not so good. He said to the butler, because both those dreams became a reality, and he said to the butler, butler, when you get out there to the Pharaoh, would you remember me? Because I've been placed in here, and I don't deserve this. Would you just put in a good word for me? The butler does not. He forgets. Now, isn't it interesting? God could have reminded the butler, hey. Yeah, God could have said, hey, butler. (laughs) You know, Joseph. No. (laughs) So what does Joseph do for doing the right thing? Two more years in the dungeon. Four years now we're up in the dungeon. This is Today with Jeff Vines and his new series, The Story. Today we're hearing about Joseph in the Old Testament. Let's continue now. Let me schematize his life for you. He does the right thing. He shows honesty and integrity. He follows God no matter how hard it is. And his life keeps going this way. And then, about the time he's 30 years old. Now it's been 13 years. It's a long time. Pharaoh has a dream. He has this dream about seven fat cows and seven thin cows and uh, ears of corn, plenty and wanting. And all of a sudden, the butler says, wait a minute, Pharaoh, there is somebody that can help you because he helped me when I was in prison. Well, thanks for nothing. (laughs) 
And it's amazing, God did probably put that into the mind of the butler because a lot of time had passed. Joseph comes out and he says to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, I know the, under, I know the interpretation of this dream. Egypt is going to suffer seven years. Seven years, they're going to have plenty and then seven years of famine. And if you will administrate and manage the goods and the productivity during the years of plenty, you will save the entire land of Egypt. Pharaoh so impressed with Joseph. The Bible says on page 33 of the story or in Genesis 41, 42, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger representing power and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of linen representing the wealthy and put a gold chain around his neck. And if you know the rest of the story, through one man, through one man and a lot of pain and suffering, God saved the entire nation of Israel Because Joseph was in charge of Egypt, and because he was in charge of Egypt, he could also feed the Israelites. And he did. And he saved the nation from extinction. And God kept his promise to Abraham, for they would flourish and they would continue to grow from that point. Now, isn't this interesting? (sighs) Then we come to this definitive part of the narrative. Now, I want you to stay with me here. Because Joseph's brothers... Even after they had sold him into slavery and all this had happened, they come now to Egypt to try to find food. They're starving. Joseph's going to feed them. Joseph plays a little game because they don't recognize Joseph. And then Joseph at one point reveals himself to them. And now they know this is our brother that we thought we sold into slavery. We thought would be dead by now. They go back to their father, Jacob. Somewhere along the line, Jacob dies. He'll never get to see Joseph. The brothers come back, and it's, it's quite humorous. They say, uh, Dad sent us. He's not living anymore, but he wanted us to read his will to you. And his will says, be nice to your brothers. <laughs> and when Joseph hears that, the Bible says he wept. And then here's the definitive line. Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Now, listen, and if you, if this is the time to write stuff down, if you're somebody that writes stuff down, what you see in Joseph's life, we know the upper story, but Joseph is a narrative written so that we would know how we have to live in the lower story while God's doing the upper story. And you find three things evident in Joseph's life that I think you find in any heart that's been transformed by the power of the gospel. Any heart that's been transformed by God, you find three things. Here's the first one. Joseph is able to love his brothers, forgive his brothers, and to continue to do the good even when his life continues to go south because one, he stays off God's throne. The first thing he says in response to his brother, am I in the place of God? This is the theme throughout the Bible. Most of your problems, most of our problems come when we start sitting on God's throne. Think about it just for a second. You go back, the the shortest Bible ever must have been in the garden in Genesis. Three pages to it. Number one, God loves you. Number two, don't eat from that tree. Number three, the serpent says, oh, when you eat of that tree, you'll become like God. Now, what does that mean? I mean, has it got God juice in the tree? You kind of eat the tree, God juice. Now I'm all powerful and I'm omniscient and I'm everywhere. You know, what does that mean? No, it's, it's not that mystical. It's far more simplistic. It simply means, you know, God said, don't do this. When you rationalize and you tell yourself that you can, at that point, you take the chair of God. 
I want you to hear me on this. I'm going to try to build this thought. Stay with me. Ravi Zacharias tells the story about Ham Pham, who was a translator for the American preachers during Vietnam. After the war was over, all the American preachers left. He was left behind. The Viet Cong arrested him and put him in a war camp. Horrific situation. I mean, they tortured him. They forced him to read Engels and Marx and tried to brainwash him out of his faith in God into atheism. And they would torture him and they told him, we're going to torture you till you renounce your faith. And he was a young boy at this time, young man translator. They would even bring him plates of food after he was hungry and it would be human excrement. They would continually torture and punish and every day force him to read Marx and Engels and anything that was anti-God. One day he was so depressed and he writes this in his book. This is how we know. He says, you know what? They successfully had brainwashed me. I'm thinking I'm in this hell hole. I mean, if God is real, why am I still here? Why would he not take me out of this prison? And he said, you know what? Tomorrow morning, I'm going to wake up and do something I've never done since I became a Christ follower. I'm going to wake up tomorrow and I'm not going to start my day with prayer. I'm not going to pray at all. And he woke up the next day and he did not pray. And that same day, the commander of the war camp put him in charge of cleaning the latrines. As he's cleaning the latrine, he looks over in a waste paper basket and he sees wadded up piece of paper with human excrement on it, but it's written in English. And he had longed to read English again. It had been a long time. So he took that piece of paper and cleaned off the human excrement, put it in his pocket. Later on that night, a flashlight that he had found, he was able to read. It was Romans chapter 8. The commander of the war camp had been using the Bible for toilet paper. And he says in his book, the first word he read, if God is for us, who can be against us? Nothing can separate us from the love of God. He will work all things together for his good, for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. He says in his book, he dropped to his knees and began to weep. And he said to God, God, you wouldn't even let me go for 24 hours. In one of my favorite movies, Shawshank Redemption, there's a line that says, get busy dying or get busy living. He decides to get busy living. He's going to try to escape with 50 others. They start building a boat. The Viet Cong come to him and say, hey, we hear you're trying to build a boat. Are you trying to escape? And he says, no. Then he gets back to the bears and says, here I go again, God, trying to run my own life. When you've shown me that you're in charge the whole time, if they come again and ask me if I'm building a boat, I'm going to tell the truth. I am not going to bear false witness. They come one hour before they're ready to take off. And they say, we hear you're trying to build a boat. Are you trying to build a boat and escape? And he says, yes, I am. <laughs> what are you going to do? Are you going to put me back in prison? They said, no, we want to come with you. <laughs> and the two Viet Cong. He writes in his book, if it wouldn't have been for these two men who came with them, who were experienced sailors, when they hit a ferocious storm, the boat would have capsized and all would have been lost. But because they navigated the seas, they were all saved in the end. Now, here's my point, because I'm thinking, what's your You are not smart enough to determine right and wrong. Now, I want to say something to this generation between the ages of 19 and 30. I love you, first of all. I do, I do. And, I, I, and I've got great confidence in you because you love social justice and I'm all about that. I love you. Every generation makes a mistake. Here's yours. We can talk about mine sometime. I'm 50, but let's talk about yours. You think you're smart enough to determine what is right and what is wrong and you're not. Stay with me. What do you mean by that? You don't think right and wrong are absolute categories. You think you get to determine what is right in any given situation because you've been taught that. But that makes life unlivable. For Joseph, think about what he could have done. Well, I am in charge of Potiphar's house. I mean, after all, I am the slave. So if Mrs. Potiphar wants me, who am I to deny her? 
We are, after all, two consenting adults. And we're not really hurting anybody. Yes, you are. You're hurting God because God said, don't do that. These are stolen waters. This is a married woman. She does not belong to you. And Joseph says, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Not sin against Mrs. Potiphar, Mr. but sin against God. Joseph never put himself on the throne. He stayed off God's throne. Let me, let, me help you, let me help you get very simplistic with this so we make sure we're on the same page and I'll move on. You go to Denny's. Okay, there's your first moral violation right there. But you go to Denny's and there's a sign on the door that says, kids under 14 eat for free. You got two kids. They're over 14, but they look under 14. The waitress asks you, are your kids under 14? You say, yes. You go in, you get two free meals. And I see you later and you tell me the story. And I say, you did wrong. You lied. And your response is this. Yeah, but Denny's doesn't need my money. First of all, you don't know that. You're not omniscient. What if there's a manager working at Denny's who's, if he doesn't match his quota, he's going to be fired. And then he loses his job and he can't, fight, he can't feed his family. What about that? What if everybody did what you did that came to Denny's? You're not smart enough. You're not omniscient. You can't know what possibly is happening all around you in every situation. That's why God says, here's the rule. Follow it. Obey me, even if it costs you. I know what I'm doing, and I know every side road and side issue that you don't. This is Today with Jeff Vines. We'll continue this new series, The Story, next time on the program. And the serpent still whispers into everybody's ear when it comes to stealing, killing, coveting, whatever. Did God really say that? Is that what he really meant? For more information or other resources from Pastor Jeff, you can head to our website. That's vision.org.au and search for Jeff Vines. Today with Jeff Vines, just another way vision is connecting faith to your life. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au. 